in the place of our usual live episode of New Idea Live. Today, we bring you a special recorded episode in which we will review key themes from the Ayn Rand Institute's distinctive commentary on foreign policy since September 11th, 2001, drawn from clips from ARI speakers at live events from the past two decades. This event will serve as a prelude to a live event on Saturday, September 11th, 2021. Ankar Gatte and Ilan Giorno will join Jerome Brook on his show for an in-depth discussion of key events and turning points since September 11th, 2001, and a retrospective on ARI's philosophic analysis of U.S. policy, a perspective that has been borne out by the facts. We'll begin our episode today First, with a review of some of ARI's earliest commentary on September 11th. In the initial aftermath of 9-11, ARI placed full-page ads in the Washington Post and the New York Times, explaining the attack and presenting an incisive warning. The greatest obstacle to U.S. victory, wrote ARI's founder, Leonard Peikoff, is not our enemies, but our own intellectuals. They advocated the same ideas that had encouraged the enemy. Fifty years of increasing American appeasement in the Middle East have led to fifty years of increasing contempt in the Muslim world for the U.S., wrote Peikoff. The irrational ideas shaping American foreign policy had led to 9-11, and every indication pointed to one conclusion. Those dominant ideas, unless rejected, would subvert the U.S. military response and our national security. America is a military superpower, but it lacks the self-confidence and moral certainty needed to understand and fight for its own self-defense. Less than a year later, ARI's Dr. Ankar Gatte also published a major piece which was released in American publications entitled, America is Not Winning the War. In this, he argued that, quote, the Bush administration's actions, guided as they are, not by reason, but by emotion, including emotions of outrage, are chaotic and contradictory. No one knows what, if anything, America will do next in the war, because we ourselves don't know what we'll do or why. How then goes the war? Gatte asked. An objective answer must be, badly. But our cause is not yet lost. We lack not the wealth nor the skilled military necessary to defeat the enemy, only the ideas and the will. If we articulate in practice a rational foreign policy, one actually premised on America's self-interest, we will prevail. Nothing more is needed to achieve victory than to replace the pragmatism and self-sacrifice now dictating America's actions with the principles of reason and rational self-interest. Nothing less will do. Much less would be done. In the hour or so of material that follows, we will see doctors Leonard Peikoff, Jerome Brook, and Don Cargate observe the events they are witnessing over the course of the next 20 years, a history that now bears witness to the failure to heed the principles of a rational foreign policy. But their record of commentary is a testament to ARI's dedication to the cause of reason and freedom in defense of American values against the threat of Islamic totalitarianism. Now on 9-11-2001, the long and doleful night once more entered the scene of Western history. The frenzy, fanaticism, and mad enthusiasm finally went to war against America with the declared purpose of wiping out everything our country stands for. On some level, President Bush understood the uniqueness of 9-11. He has compared it validly to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. But 9-11, he has suggested, is worse. And even in purely quantitative terms, he is right about that. 9-11 killed hundreds more people, wounded double the number of Pearl Harbor, and caused massively greater destruction, $40.2 billion worth, not counting all the economic losses it has caused since that date. There is no military capability anywhere that would dare to challenge the world's only superpower, who everyone knows can squelch any nation or coalition we choose to target. 
So what has our answer been to 9-11? I want to review some key points since the attack in chronological order. At first, when 9-11 occurred, the country reacted in similar terms, disbelief and rage. There was grief for the victims, admiration for the heroic police and firemen, but above all, there was a desire for self-defense, retaliation, revenge. There was a surge of patriotism. American flags appeared everywhere. The national atmosphere was solemn, tense, funereal. Hollywood canceled programs that seemed insensitive. The left was scared stiff and kept silent. There was no more business as usual. The country was gearing up psychologically for a battle of life and death. On September 20th, in the midst of the national fury, President Bush gave his famous speech to Congress. Like Roosevelt, he was seeking to rally and inspire the country. And he too pledged a militant response to the destruction of our enemies. The biggest difference between the speeches, however, is what FDR did not say that Bush, by contrast, insisted upon. Bush's speech is worthy of attention. It foretokens the whole response to terrorism of patriotic Americans ever since. Along with his vows of retaliation, Bush's speech is laced with appeasement. Appeasement of the very nations and institutions that created or feed the terrorist axis. Not to put too fine a point on it, our president sucked up to virtually every enemy in sight. He told us about his gratitude for prayers for us in Arabic, about, quote, the sympathy offered at a mosque in Cairo, about the Pakistanis and Iranians killed in the explosion, about, quote, our many Muslim friends. He boasted that we not only respect Afghanistan, but are currently its largest source of humanitarian aid. He offered his gratitude for support from, quote, the Islamic world, unquote. The terrorists, he stressed, another quote, are a fringe form of Islamic extremism that perverts the peaceful teaching of Islam. We respect your faith, its teachings are good, unquote. Now, Bush, being deeply religious himself, did not even hint at the truth that religiosity is the indispensable background and driving force of 9-11. Everyone knows the role in the anti-American jihad of Islamic faith, from the mosques and seminaries in Iran and Saudi Arabia, all the way to the crazed suicide bombers hurrying to meet their 72 perpetual virgins in paradise. In a speech declaring war against a vicious enemy who has attacked you, it is a moral crime to distinguish between the active instigators and their passive legions. What you must denounce in such a speech, if you are a proper patriotic leader, is the essence of the threat. Philosophically, on the deepest level, what Bush should have said was some equivalent of the prayer which Maureen Dowd, herself, by the way, a religious woman, saw scrawled on a wall in Washington soon after 9-11. Dear God, Save us from the people who believe in you. Now, the topic of self-defense brings me to the war in Afghanistan. <clears throat> America went into Afghanistan filled with ambivalence, uncertainty, and even guilt. Our leadership was afraid of Afghan civilian casualties, afraid of American casualties, and afraid of being hated in the Mideast as infidel imperialists. So they settled on a pitiful proxy war in which we were not combatants, but merely advisors. And what we advised was warring tribes open to bribery from all sides, catching prisoners and then letting them escape, often en masse, as in Tora Bora, while the US looked on helplessly wringing its hands. The Americans sent not many soldiers to that war, but a great many expensive bombs and missiles, which achieved numerous and mostly useless holes in the ground. They did not dare population centers where Al-Qaeda and the Taliban promptly hid out, thereby eluding capture. And along with the bombs, of course, we covered the country with care packages. <clears throat> Was this a war or a charade? A war in self-defense must be fought without self-crippling restrictions placed on our commanders. 
and it must secure undiluted, unconditional victory as fast as possible, regardless of how many innocent civilians are caught in the line of fire or are deliberate targets of that fire. These innocents suffer and die because of the action of their own government in sponsoring the initiation of force against us. Their fate, therefore, is their government's moral responsibility, not ours. What the war in Afghanistan did is to send a message at that time to the world that the U.S. is a self-made paper tiger to scare no one. In practical terms, all that war really accomplished was to scatter the enemy, including most of its leadership to other countries, mainly Pakistan, leaving the threat to the U.S. from al-Qaeda as bad as ever which remains true to this day, as even the CIA has stated publicly. The war in Afghanistan was not only a colossal defeat for the world's only superpower, it was a joke. Afghanistan was wrong war number one in the fight against terrorism. <clears throat> Obviously, it's proper to retaliate right away against the specific thugs who perpetrated 9-11. But terrorism is an ideological phenomenon the ideology of Islamic fundamentalism, the ideology of burning religious hatred of secular Western values. And you cannot stop or even wound such a lethal ideology merely by chasing after some of its thugs and their hiding places. To defeat Nazism in World War II, nothing less than a massive assault on its home base, Germany, on the country at the heart of Nazism's support and export was necessary. The same applies to Islamic fundamentalism. And the Germany of Islamic fundamentalism is not Afghanistan or Iraq. It is Iran. Wrong war number two, in my opinion, Iraq. <clears throat> Why Iraq, not Iran? Iran, as everyone in Washington knows, is the birthplace in 1979 and the center of the modern Muslim fundamentalist movement. That is why Iran has much greater ties with all the terrorist groups than the secular Hussein regime ever did. And why Iran, by the admission of our own State Department, is the worst country in the world in this respect. In other words, it's incomparably more active than Iraq in turning out supporting, arming, and exporting terrorists. Iran, too, is a brutal dictatorship. And it, too, is working feverishly and even more effectively in some respects than Iraq was to stockpile nuclear and other weapons of mass destruction. Even Bush himself included Iran in his axis of evil, along with Iraq and North Korea. But he does nothing to single out Iran as by far our gravest enemy, gravest in the context of the terrorist crisis. Why not? Because Iran is the only religious nation of those three. And Bush does not want to name this fact. In other words, to have to reveal the ideological reason why Iran, Iran is our supreme enemy. Because his whole worldview is tied to the virtue and alleged peacefulness of religion as such of any variety. By the way, if we are short of countries to target militarily, what about such obviously eligible places as Saudi Arabia or Pakistan? both incomparably greater strongholds of terrorism than Iraq. Now, having picked Iraq for bad reasons, our leaders proceeded to make things worse by stressing over and over that our motives in this war were not only or even primarily our own self-defense. They were also strongly altruistic. The war's code name was not Operation American Safety, but Operation Iraqi Freedom. We fought, we were told, not only to protect the whole world from Saddam, but even more important, so that we can shower the lovable Iraqis with everything good. Food, medicine, supplies, individual rights, freedom, a whole new reconstruction at a cost of $100 billion, unit. And that is what makes self-defense okay as against being merely selfishness on our part. In other words, in this war, we were not even permitted to say too loudly that we are out to save ourselves and our own country. That would be unacceptable egoism. Now, with some notable and glorious exceptions, the conduct of the war largely followed from its stated moral purpose. 
Now, I'm not talking about the undeniable courage and heroism of our troops, nor about their number, about which I have no opinion, but about the battle orders. The troops were instructed methodically to pull their punches, i.e., to spare Iraq's civilians and its infrastructure. And even more, and I quote, they were instructed, quote, to avoid the kind of fighting that might enrage the Iraqi people, unquote. We are at war against this country, but there must be no fighting that would enrage the people in the country. Now, we are speaking here of the injury or death of courageous American boys, hundreds of them, many of whom set aside jobs or college plans in order, so they thought, to fight for American liberty. And I say that even one of these boys' lives deliberately imperiled by our so-called moral policy is an act of immorality, is in fact a moral atrocity. It is literally turning our soldiers into sacrificial offerings. But Mr. Bush has no problem with this, apparently. Americans, he has said approvingly, know how to, quote, sacrifice for the liberty of strangers, unquote. We have shown again that American power is supreme, but that we are still morally unsure of our right fully to use it. So we leave open to the world the questions. Will the US use its power after the next provocation? And if so, how seriously? So long as these questions remain open, we remain vulnerable. Our enemies who passionately hate us will probably leave us alone for a while, but they are not crushed they are not paralyzed by fear. They are not convinced that jihad against us is simply unthinkable. So who knows if and how they will rally and attack us again next month or next year, once the Iraqi war has faded into history. A few months ago, the Marines entered Fallujah with the intent of destroying the insurgent forces located there insurgents that had been killing American soldiers for months. After days of combat, they left, leaving the insurgents alive and well, free to strike and kill US soldiers in the future. And that is what they are doing. Now these actions are not the exception in our current wars. Observe how we fight our so-called war on terrorism. From the beginning, political and military leaders in all ranks have emphasized that civilians in enemy countries are to be spared. Our soldiers have been ordered to follow strict rules of engagement that have cost many their lives so as to avoid any enemy casualties. Numerous operations have been canceled or halted in order to avoid collateral damage. Monsters like Osama bin Laden and his deputies are still alive because we hesitated to bomb them out of their hideouts for fear of hitting so-called innocents. We avoid military action against actively, actively threatening regimes, such as Iran. And when we do take military action, we first seek the approval of hostile countries and the United Nations. In this so-called war, the idea of victory has been discarded entirely after all, as we have been told repeatedly, this is, quote, a new kind of war, one that will last decades. How will it end? Well, you've probably heard President Bush himself address this issue. In a recent TV interview, Bush said, quote, I don't think we can win it, it means the war, but I think you can create conditions so that those who use terror as a tool are less acceptable in parts of the world, unquote. Now, of course, he later backpedaled, but he assured us that we can't expect victory in a conventional sense. What happened to America's old willingness to wage and win wars? The answer lies in a change in American leaders' beliefs about morality generally and the morality of war in particular. The morality of war has been overtaken by a fully explicit altruistic theory of war, one that is universally taught in our universities and war colleges. 
It is accepted, not merely by intellectuals, but by our politicians, the leaders of the military, and the media. The theory is called just war theory, and it is the number one factor animating our war today. That's according to the original just war theory. If only you are attacked, you are obliged to turn the other cheek. Only if someone attacks your neighbor are you permitted to retaliate. Well, if others' well-being is the standard, then one just cause for war is the protection of another people from aggression or oppression or genocide. Thus, just war theory endorses the sacrifice of American soldiers and American wealth for peacekeeping and humanitarian missions anywhere and everywhere around the globe. Many just war advocates, such as many of the neoconservatives, hold that US intervention in places like Liberia, Kosovo, Bosnia, Somalia, and I guess now Sudan, is morally mandatory. What about fighting a war in self-defense, a goal that President Bush claims to fully endorse? Yes, just war theory says, you can go to war in self-defense, but only for altruistic reasons. Their fellow citizens, after all, are others, and thus a legitimate beneficiary of their sacrifices, just like the suffering peoples in other countries. Thus soldiers, according to just war theory, do not fight for themselves, for their own values. They are sacrificial animals. Their job is to give up their lives so that their countrymen, fond victims of oppression, or, as we shall see, even their country's enemies are protected. President Bush's case for war in Afghanistan and Iraq were a perfect illustration of this. The impetus for both, especially Afghanistan, was clearly September 11th. But he did not consider pure self-defense a sufficient justification for war in either case. Thus, he supplemented the alleged self-defense portion of each mission with massive campaigns to relieve Afghan and Iraqi suffering. In the build-up to Iraq, President Bush was especially concerned with just war theory. The reason was that he was trying to justify one uh, aspect of self-defense, which is preemption, an idea that's very controversial among just war theorists. Thus, President Bush made sure to make the emphasis of his campaign not Saddam's threat to the United States, which we heard very little about, but the goal of preserving the integrity of the UN, of freeing the Iraqi people of a tyrant, this is Operation Iraqi Freedom after all, of showering the Iraqis with food, collectively owned oil, and democracy. Just war theory has been crucial not only in defining the when and why of the wars Bush has chosen to wage, it has also defined the wars that Bush has chosen not to fight. Bush has taken no military action whatsoever against the worst terrorist regime, Iran. Now take Iran. By the standard of actual self-defense, Iran was and is the most important regime to defeat. We know that Iran poses a greater threat to the US than Iraq. It is, after all, the spiritual fatherland of the ideology that drives the terrorists. It is the world's leading supporter and producer of terrorists. And it is developing a nuclear arsenal. But these are merely selfish criteria. And few just war theorists would argue that we have suffered enough from Iran to be at the point of last resort. How long before we can consider last resort of war against Iran? Well, this is how President Bush explained the issue last week to the New York Times. Suggesting that he would be patient, Bush said, quote, we will continue pressing Iran diplomatically. He continued, diplomacy failed for 11 years in Iraq. And this new diplomatic effort in Iran started barely a year ago, unquote. In other words, if we tried diplomacy for, with Iraq, last resort, for 11 years, why not grant Iran the same luxury? This in spite of a history that began 
with the taking of the hostages in our embassy in 1979, continued through numerous attacks on Americans in Beirut, the Cobalt Towers in Saudi Arabia, continued with Iran's sponsorship and support of numerous terrorist groups like Hezbollah and Hamas, and its development of nuclear weapons. And it's continued, continued daily almost, verbal threats against the United States and Israel. One can only understand the administration's decision to invade Iraq, but not Iran, if one understands that the administration is not primarily guided by questions of self-defense. The overruling criteria for any action is that it fit into the sacrificial framework of just war theory. To the extent that the requirements of self-defense are contradicted by the requirements of this theory, the requirements of self-defense are thrown out. Just war theory, in the final analysis, is anti-self-defense, as is this administration. Bush's repeated professions of concern about self-defense are meaningless and, and as genuine as his statements after every Palestinian terrorist attack that, quote, Israel has a right to defend itself but should show restraint, unquote. Like advocates of just war theory, he believes in self-defense so long as it adheres to sacrificial restrictions and imperatives that make self-defense impossible. Imperatives such as constricting rules of engagement in which U.S. soldiers must expose themselves to absurd risks lest they harm civilians. Imperatives demanding that the U.S. appease warlords and would-be dictators like Mukta Desada. The moral imperatives of just war theory are such that they deliberately undercut the valiant efforts of our military. President Bush is able to project moral confidence precisely because the thing he is confident about is not America's right to self-defense, it is America's right to self-sacrifice. The only real alternative to the application of altruism to war is the application of egoism to war. Now here I am drawing upon Ayn Rand's ethics, which form part of her system of philosophy, objectivism. Now, what do I mean by egoism? It is the moral code that takes man's life as the standard of morality. It holds that man ought to live for his own sake, achieving his values by his own effort, never sacrificing himself to others, nor others to himself. The question is, what is the moral purpose of war? The answer provided by the objectivist ethics is simple. The purpose of war is the same as any other action proper to a government, to protect the individual rights of its citizens. Ethics and politics, by defining the purpose of war, set the standard of value by which all issues of entering and waging a war must be judged. It is appropriate to go to war whenever it is necessary for the protection of the individual rights of Americans the rights to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. Such a necessity arises when these rights are violated or threatened by a foreign aggressor. By the standard of individual rights, a nation can morally go to war only in self-defense. Wars of self-sacrifice, humanitarian missions, for example, and wars of aggression are violations of the citizens' individual rights our citizens' individual rights, especially of our soldiers, both constitute forcibly sacrificing the lives and money of Americans for the sake of some so-called higher cause, whether it be the suffering of the Somalians or the power lust of a president. Now, the fundamental ethical principle of waging war is egoism. Every action must be in the service of one's selfish purpose. One must do anything and everything necessary to protect the individual rights of Americans. In practice, this means first identify the nature of the threat, then identify and do whatever is necessary to destroy the threat with minimal loss of American life and liberty. And when I say whatever, I mean whatever is necessary. 
If once the facts are rationally evaluated, it is found that directly bombing civilian populations will save American lives, then it is moral, morally mandatory to do so. If nuclear or chemical weapons are the most efficient way of achieving our purpose, then they are absolutely appropriate. If surprising enemy soldiers in their sleep and massacring them is necessary to achieve our goal, then that is what must be done. If flattening Fallujah is the best way to end the insurgency, then Fallujah must be flattened. Anyone involved, by choice or not, in the initiation of force against an innocent nation is thereby outside the principle of individual rights. Just as an individual criminal forfeit his rights, so do the leaders, soldiers, and civilians of criminal nations. For the most part, a country's citizens are not merely innocent bystanders to the crimes of their regimes. They are responsible for the actions of their governments unless they have taken active steps to object, resist, change, or go underground. What then about the truly innocent? The freedom fighters, the descendants, which are always a small minority in any country. Insofar as they can be isolated without military cost, they should not be killed. It is unjust, anti-selfish, to senselessly kill the innocent. And it is of value to have more rational, pro-American people in the world. But insofar as they cannot be isolated, they are threats. Since sparing their lives means sacrificing ours, and we should kill them without moral hesitation. All casualties in war are the sole responsibility of those who made the war necessary, including the aggressive civilian base of support, not the responsibility of those acting in self-defense. We are losing the war on Islamic totalitarianism, not because of our physical weakness and their strength, but because of our leadership, political and militarily. In spite of much of its rhetoric, this leadership is crippled by the philosophy of altruism. The implicit philosophy that allowed Sherman, Patton, Truman, MacArthur, and Churchill to do what was necessary to win could not, being merely implicit, stand up to the challenge of an explicit altruism, whether in its religious or secular form. Total victory requires an ethic of self-interest. Since that ethic has mostly vanished from this world, total victory now demands an ethical revolution. Last fall, on September 30th, the Danish newspaper, Jelens Posten, published 12 cartoons depicting Mohammed. The cartoons were commissioned to illustrate an article in Freedom of Speech and were on the climate of fear of criticizing Islam that has been growing among European intellectuals. Apparently, that fear, that fear was well-founded. The cartoons sparked a firestorm of controversy that has reached a climax in recent months. The Islamic world erupted into violent protest with rioters setting fire to the Danish embassies in Syria and Lebanon. Death threats and widespread calls to inflict violence on the cartoonist have sent them into hiding for fear of their lives. Some of the cartoons that generated this response will be on display this evening shortly. In America, the right to free speech is protected by the First Amendment to our Constitution, which reads as follows, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances." End of quote. Similar protections of freedom of speech exist in virtually all Western countries. So we'll now pause while the cartoons are put up.
Why are we here? Why show the cartoons? Why is the Ayn Rand Institute now on its uh, fourth event, such event, and, and, and by the time we're finished, there'll be at least five of these all across the country? The reason we're here is, I think, that events demand it. The publication of the cartoons, the response in the Muslim world, but more importantly, if it had, is the response in the West. What was the response in the West? Well, for the most part, it was silence. It was showing the demonstrations in the Middle East, but leaving it at that. Uh, it was the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, representing both left and right, deciding not to publish the cartoons. Uh, it was Danish cartoonists going into hiding for fear of their lives. It was uh, President Bush and uh, the State Department declaring that while we all have the right to free speech, I guess in some theoretical sense, we need to use it responsibly, which in other words is, is a code name for not offending anybody, not getting anybody upset, not putting anybody at risk. I think this is a horrific response, and this is why we are doing this. We are doing this because the U.S. government and U.S. media have, in my view, neglected the responsibility to stand up and to defend free speech in this country. So given that our media and given that our government is not doing what is necessary, what are we to do? What are we as the citizens of a free country supposed to do? Well, I think this, this is what we're supposed to do. We need to stand up to evil. We need to refuse to be silenced. We need to show that we will exercise our rights without fear, with security, but without fear that we will not let the intimidation work. Because when those riots happened in the Middle East, what was the goal of the riots? What was the goal of burning down embassies? What was the goal of killing people? What was the goal of threatening the cartoonists with, well, where is it over there, with beheading? Behead all those who offend Islam. What is the goal of that? It is to silence us. And we, if we care about our freedoms, if we care about a right to speak. We have to stand up against that intimidation and say, no, we will not be silenced. We will not let you intimidate us. And if our government defaults on its responsibility to stand up to you, and, and has, as Dr. Pipes mentioned, for 17 years now, since the Solomon Rushdie affair, because, of course, the Bush, the senior, the Bush seniors administration did exactly the same thing. It, it, it indeed condemned both Rushdie and the Iranians and, uh, for issuing the fatwa. If they will not do it, then we as the American people need to stand up and do it. Now, what do the writing Muslims want? Well, they want our submission. As Dr. Pipe said, they want us to submit to Sharia law. They want to subordinate our will, our minds, our wishes to theirs to their faith, ultimately, to their God, to their religion. The ideology that drives them, totalitarian Islam, demands that complete subjugation of everything to their interpretation of God's words, to their interpretation of Islam. Now, what kind of ideology are we talking about? Well, we're talking about an ideology that I think is illustrated in these posters and an ideology that it illustrated in their actions after the publication of the Danish cartoons. We're talking about ideology that is focused on using force, on using force to burn buildings, to riot, to kill, to force people into thinking, or at least pretending to think, in particular ways. This is an ideology of faith that can only deal with disagreement through violence because it has rejected explicitly the use of reason. And that is, again, what we see in the way they deal with the West. Whether it's by killing somebody because they converted, because they want to convert, or they have converted to Christianity, wanting to kill them, or whether it's letting girls die as they escape a, a burning house because they're not dressed appropriately, uh, whether it's stoning somebody uh, for adultery or beheading an infidel. Their ideology demands violence against those who disagree with them. Now, 
to some extent, taken seriously, all religion demands that because its tool is fundamentally faith and not reason. Christianity, Judaism, other religions have gone through a absorption of elements of reason into them over the last 200 years, 300 years, and they're nonviolent anymore. The case, the problem we face today is a violent form of religion that wants, that demands enslavement and through, through the use of force. Note here that these demonstrations, these riots, were part of a much broader war. They, were part of, they are part of a war that started decades ago. They're part of a war that was made real to the American people on September 11th. But in a sense, these riots, all of this war is meant to, to bring about the Sharia, this, this sub, subjugation. But in a sense, this is worse than September 11th. Not in what they've done, obviously, but in how we've responded. After September 11th, we were outraged. We demanded action. And indeed, our, our government did act. What have we done with the Danish cartoons? Uh, we have folded. We have accepted their intimidation as our way of life. We have not acted. Uh, and we have basically showed them that they can win. And I think we've just invigorated them. We've given them more, uh, more strength. I think by doing this, by having these kind of events, by standing up to them, is the only way that ultimately we can win this ideological war. Thank you. In the five years since September 11th, many people have asked despondently if the United States is safer. While there has been little reason to feel more secure, about a year ago, many were swept up uh, in the excitement of the government's new strategy in the Middle East. Some people were euphoric with hope. We all saw an early milestone of that strategy in January of 2005. We saw the images of smiling Iraqis displaying their ink-stained fingers, having just cast their votes in elections in liberated Iraq. Those images, people said, symbolized a momentous development. We all heard the breathless news reports about a wave of democracy in the Middle East. After the voting, President Bush said the balloting was a resounding success and praised Iraqis who, quote, have taken rightful control of their country's destiny, unquote. The upshot of all this, we were told, would be greater security for America. The crusade to dem democratize the greater Middle East was premised an idea that, to quote Bush, the security of our nation depends on the advance of liberty in other nations, unquote. This is Bush's so-called forward strategy for freedom, bringing democracy to the rest of the world for the alleged purpose of making America safer. Much of the criticism had centered on the concrete means of the strategy, but not on its ends. But perhaps the strategy's end is the problem. Perhaps nothing went wrong. And what we're seeing in the Middle East is the fulfillment of the forward strategy's actual goal. Truly free nations have no interest in waging war on others, except in self-defense. Free nations prosper through trade, not conquest and plunder. Peace is good for them. War is not. It is also true that the more free countries there are in the world, the better off we are. But would this strategy of promoting democracy as, as the, as the uh, main uh, vehicle for defending America, would the strategy have sounded plausible as a response to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor? 
Imagine that following Pearl Harbor, Americans were told that victory would come not by fighting the enemy until, it, until it's all unconditional surrender. No, but by bringing democracy to Asia and Europe. Imagine that our goal in the war was declared to be liberating poor Japanese and Germans from enslavement by their rulers. Imagine that U.S. bombers dropped aid packages on German and Japanese cities in between delicate sprinkles of missiles. Because this was, was not the approach taken, World War II was won decisively in less than four years after Pearl Harbor. We are now entering the sixth year of Bush's war, and there is no end in sight. Things are only getting worse. After Pearl Harbor, the outraged people of America demanded self-assertive retaliation, and their government delivered. Likewise, right after 9-11, people were righteously outraged. Their healthy, rational response was, we need to fight a war now to make us safer. The administration also felt outraged. It famously announced that we must, quote, end states who support terrorism, unquote. But that initial response to 9-11 did not last. It was not translated into any military strategy for victory. The idea that it is right for America to be self-interested, that did not last. Operation Infinite Justice was renamed to something blandly differential. The nation's willingness to defeat the enemy evaporated. Why? Because the initial response that self-interest is proper clashed with people's more deeply held belief about what is morally good. This is where the forward strategy comes in. This strategy reflects and is motivated by the dominant moral code in our country, altruism. From secular and religious authorities, left and right, we are urged that to be moral is to give up your values in selfless service to others. We hear it constantly. Serve in a cause larger than yourself, and whatever you do, don't be selfish. According to this creed, our duty is to put other people first and subordinate or renounce our own values. According, uh, according to this creed, Mother Teresa is a moral hero, but a productive businessman like Bill Gates is not. Unless, of course, he repents and gives his way away his billions of dollars. Whom must, must we serve? Well, whoever is deemed needy, whoever lacks a value like liberty or wealth. And on this standard, the oppressed, impoverished, primitive Iraqis are definitely have-nots. And the cardinal value that America must sacrifice is its own national security, the defense of our lives from Islamic terrorists. The forward strategy thus demands that we put aside America's rightful need for security and instead sacrifice for strangers all across the globe, wherever tyranny rules. The goal of the democracy crusade is not to end the threats arrayed against us, but to bring unearned benefits to the world's hungry and oppressed. Facing catastrophic threats to the lives of Americans, how did the administration respond? Well, guided by its moral premises, the administration did not ask itself what must be done to protect the country. Instead, it asked, how can America best serve strangers in need? The forward strategy is not concerned with defeating, defeating the enemy at all. It is a substitute for achieving victory. But even on its own terms, by advocating democracy, in other words, unlimited majority rule, the forward strategy is a vicious fraud. This should be clear to anyone who truly understands what freedom is. While claiming to champion freedom, the strategy has nothing to do with it. The truth is exactly the opposite. 
the Ford strategy encourages tyranny and is an assault on the freedom of Americans. Freedom in a political context means the absence of physical coercion. It is so profound a value because in order to eat and earn a living, to build cars and perform surgery, in order to live, man must think and act on the judgment of his own rational mind. In order to take that action, he must be left alone, left free from the interference of the government and of other men. The moral foundation of freedom is respect for the sovereignty of the individual and his right to exist for his own sake. Because the founding fathers understood this, they created a constitutional republic, enshrining the protection of individual rights, the rights to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. Our constitutional framework prohibits the majority from voting away the rights of anyone. The founders firmly rejected democracy. Democracy rests on the primacy of the group. If your gang is large enough, you can get away with whatever you want, sacrificing the life and wealth of whoever stands in your way. A democracy is majority rule, unlimited by moral principle. It is a form of tyranny. Now observe that spreading democracy is an inherent part of the forward strategy. The reason is that the system of democracy is an efficient means of selflessly serving others. To serve America's self-interest would mean that we decided the political makeup of a defeated regime, how it is made permanently non-threatening. We would be better off and safer if we could ensure that we don't have to face a resurgent threat in a country we've waged war to defeat. But Washington disavows any intention of deciding this issue. Kind of what, po what political regime will be in place. Bush proclaimed all along that America would never determine the precise character of Iraq's new regime. The decision was entirely theirs. That's what democracy is. Whatever these Iraqis choose, America would endorse selflessly. When asked if the U.S. would accept an election that brought to power an Iranian-style militant theocracy in the new Iraq, Bush said, yes. He explained that, quote, democracy is democracy, unquote. Why should America sit back and accept a new hostile regime in Iraq, a worse threat to our security than Saddam Hussein was? Why? Because whatever the Iraqis dictate goes. Their will must be sovereign. Their desire must come first, above any American interests. We must sacrifice our legitimate need for security, our prerogative to render and keep Iraq peaceful, in order to satisfy the will of the majority of poor, weak Iraqis. Anything else would be selfish. You can see what drives the strategy. America is free, wealthy, and strong. And thus, on the morality of self-sacrifice, we must serve others, not ourselves. America should be an intellectual advocate for freedom. It is in our best interest to encourage others to adopt political and economic freedom. To genuine freedom fighters, we should give our moral endorsement, which in itself is considerable, though often underappreciated. We should, for example, endorse the free Taiwanese who are resisting the claims of authoritarian China to rule the island state. But the advocacy of freedom has an absolute limit. It is never, it is never moral for America to send its troops in order to liberate a people and then pile sacrifice upon sacrifice for the sake of nation building. It is wrong to send troop, our troops on humanitarian missions or to fight wars where America's security is not directly at stake. Such wars are a violation of the rights of us troops who fight to protect our and their liberty. It is also an outrageous squandering of resources that our government is obliged to use only in defense of American lives. 
So on the fifth anniversary of 9-11, I call on you all to rededicate yourself to your moral right to life and America's moral right to self-defense. Remember the evil of the attacks on that day and recognize that this is a war. Remember that it is morally proper, indeed morally necessary, that we crush the enemy. Aware that our cause is just, we must help America recapture the spur to righteous action left to us by the brave passengers of Flight 93. Let's roll. Thank you. What gives encouragement, uh, um, what emboldens the Islamic totalitarians uh, throughout the world who are, I mean, massing and attacking en masse, what in, has emboldened them, particularly in their attacks against the West? I would single out four episodes that has given them tremendous inspiration and courage. The first, and because it's the first, uh, the worst because it sets the precedent for everything else, was the uh, seizure in Iran of the American embassy, um, the parading day after day on the news of the hostages, the belittling of America, and if you can, I was nine or ten at the time and watching the news, and the sense just of, of being depressed um, and, and that something has been lost about the West and about America, that pervaded that episode. And Ayn Rand said in a, a very prophetic statement that if we didn't view that as an act of war and march on Tehran in the days following, you will not live that down for decades. Um, and unfortunately, we have not lived it down. Uh, that, that has been all too true, that statement. So there, there was that episode, and then th these happen about every decade. Um, you fast forward to the Rushdie, fat, the fatwa against Rushdie. Here you have now a, a supreme leader of Iran reaching outside its borders, openly calling for the assassination of a Western author and the editors and the publishers, including American publishers, of his book, and the West and the U.S. again does virtually nothing, or in some cases worse than nothing. And that was a tremendous inspiration and emboldening uh, of the, their cause. And then, of course, if you take 9-11, <clears throat> now they can carry out a massive attack on U.S. soil, inflict a tremendous amount of damage. That is a way of drawing recruits and people to the cause. And I put the Charlie Hebdo assassinations into, as the fourth one into that category. <clears throat> um, that, and I thought at the time, this is going to give them tremendous inspiration. You're going to see attacks immediately following, as you saw in Copenhagen on Lars Vilks, and as we saw now in Garland, Texas, at the cartoon contest. <clears throat> because what that singled to them was here was people who've been on a hit list for years who had some amount of government protection. You can argue about how well they were protected at Charlie Hebdo in Paris, but they had some uh, protection and they were able to assassinate them nevertheless. <clears throat> in, in sort of graphic terms, the way I think of it, unfortunately, if you've seen the movie uh, The Untouchables with uh, Sean Connery, Kevin Costner, Robert De Niro, it's a pretty good movie. Um, and I like some of its moral tones. And in that movie, the, what the untouchables means is the, the, the few police officers or law enforcement officers who are willing to go after Capone and, his, and, his, and, his, and the mob um, are viewed as untouchable because they're, they're not corrupt, they won't take bribes. Um, and then halfway uh, through the movie, the, Capone's men are able to assassinate one of the police officers in the police precinct and in an elevator, and they write on the elevator in blood, touchable. <clears throat> and that is the message that the Charlie Hebdo assassinations have sent to the Islamic totalitarians. It, it is a very ominous uh, event that one should really be concerned about, just from a foreign policy perspective.
perspective. And I think Alain Jurno in, in his talk will be talking much more about the jihadist movement. What I want to focus on is the West and the argument as it exists in the West. But just to think of what the impact of the Charlie Hebdo assassinations have been on the West. I mean, it, it's obviously had a tremendous impact on freedom of speech. So there's increasing calls, probably more so in Europe than in America, but certainly in America and in Canada, for hate speech laws. <clears throat> um, uh, uh, Fleming Rose, the, the, who was the cultural editor uh, who published the Danish cartoons in 2005, which led to the 2005-2006 Danish cartoon crisis. He talks about how the Danish justice minister says that, oh, well, if only we had had uh, greater hate speech laws, we could have prevented these attacks. We could have prevented the Danish cartoon crisis. We could have prevented the killing of Theo van Gogh. We could have prevented these attacks. How do you prevent the attacks? You silence your own citizens. That's the view of what, what we should do in regard, in the face of this kind of attack. And then you have the, the climate which has only increased after the Charlie Hebdo assassinations. You have a climate of self-censorship. Um, there's, I mean, you can't calculate how many people who would have talked about uh, and, and criticized in some kind of way Islam, Islamic totalitarians, religion more generally, how they've been silenced and they're just too scared to do so. And even the people who are courageous enough to do so, take Fleming Rose again, um, and publishing his book about the 2005-2006 Danish cartoon crisis. Um, he has difficulty finding publishers. In some countries, he can't find a publisher at all. In other countries, they won't publish the book with the cartoons. The central event of the whole crisis, they won't publish the book with the cartoons. In America, he could not find a, a, a first-rate publisher. He, it, it, he sort of has a publisher of last resort, the Cato Institute, and good for the Cato Institute for having the courage to publish the book. Um, <clears throat> and this is someone courageous enough to speak, and he has real difficulty getting his message out. There's a tremendous climate now of self-censorship. And there's a real issue here. Um, so it, it, people often dismiss it as, well, what do you need to publish a few obscene uh, cartoons? And if you see some of the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, some of them are, you could, uh, they're, so, they're certainly not... Uh, mainstream, they want to be mainstream in, the, in America. Um, there, there are questionable content, some of them. <clears throat> what do you need to publish a few obscene uh, cartoons? What's the big deal? But th there's a tremendous issue at stake here, which is the ability to criticize, which includes satirizing, mocking, ridiculing religion. <clears throat> um, and if that goes, you have a tremendous uh, difficulty properly and actively opposing religion. If you look at what happened in the Enlightenment, <clears throat> um, a, a part, it's not the whole story, but a part of how the Enlightenment marginalized religion, that it marginalized it, it put religion in the backwaters of the, the, not in the mainstream anywhere, but in the backwaters of the culture. And one of the ways in which it did that was by satirizing and mocking religion. In that case, Christianity. But it's this kind of thing um, that is part of what marginalized religion during the Enlightenment. And in a fight against religion, you need to be able to do this. You need the freedom to do it, and you need to actually do it. And that, in regard to Islam, is disappearing or has disappeared. And that is really bad. So the moderates are part of the problem, and the conceptualization of the issue in terms of moderate and extreme, <clears throat> plays into giving sanctuary and partial immunity to faith. And the issue is that this argument has to be made in terms of faith. That that is the essence of the issue. What has to be brought to an end, <clears throat> or at least radically marginalized in comparison to its standing today, is faith. The whole issue of blind belief blind obedience on Islam, because it does need special focus today of the major monotheistic religions. It is the one that is the most faith-based, that does the most to indoctrinate 
people into faith as a total way of life. Um, And it it is militant today, and it is crusading. It needs special focus. But what is wrong with it is the way in which it's a crusading faith. And that has to be grasped and talked about. <clears throat> um, and to go back to Ayan Hirsi if you read her, some of her backstory, she's brought up in East Africa and then part of the time in, in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> and she has a sort of, uh, you could put it in, ter- in terms of a, uh, a more um, compromised, compartmentalized faith that she's brought up in her early years and then gets exposed to the more radical and consistent and the practitioners who think you should have faith as a total way of life. And this is a thoughtful, intelligent, now educated and eloquent person. And she falls for that and she tells at age 20, she supports the fatwa on Salman Rushdie, thinks he should be assassinated, she's never read his book, and yet that's what, and it, and it, you can read a little bit about the indoctrination, but the essence of the indoctrination is not specific to Islam. The essence of the indoctrination is stop questioning things, stop thinking, here's the faith, this is what we know, you've got to submit, you've got to obey, and that's pounded in. And then it's relevant, but it's a secondary and a detail than the specifics of the dogma that is being pounded in. But when you get someone to view his whole life as it should be governed by faith, you can get them to do almost anything and support almost anything. So that even though there has to be some focus on what Islam today is about and what it is uh, conveying and what it is trying to indoctrinate, the essence of the issue remains faith and the argument has to be made, I think, at the level of faith and the conceptualization in terms of moderate and extreme Muslim, Christian, Jew obscures that issue and is meant, I think, to obscure that issue and has to be resisted. If you would like to learn more about the ideas discussed in the preceding material, please consider downloading the new expanded second edition of Failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism, edited by Ankar Gatte and Elon Giorno. You can download a copy at bit.ly slash fcit2. Please also be sure to join us for a special episode of New Ideal Live, live this coming Saturday, September 11th, 2021, on the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, in which Drs. Yaron Brook, Ankar Gatte, and Ilan Giorno will bring us up to date with their observations of what we've learned and what we've failed to learn since the September 11th attacks and their take on the significance of ARI's commentary over the course of the last 20 years. Thank you and see you then. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.